0: Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And thank you, worship team. Uh, This team just beautifully led us in such a way that if you were, you know, following along with them, then you know exactly where we're going to be today. What we're going to be considering uh, these beautiful truths that are going to be unpacked for us in Philippians 3. Again, Philippians chapter 3. So, this passage uh, that we're in this morning is just a beautiful passage. Uh, it's a, often called the gem, or one of the gems of the New Testament. And it's a passage that many of you are probably familiar with, especially if you've ever spent time formulating theology. This passage has so much to say about the nature of salvation. And so no doubt some of you have sat with these these words and and wrestled through them and considered what they say about who we are in Christ, about our eternal destiny. And so uh, these are quite significant in uh, how we think about life in Christ. But the passage we're gonna be considering today is a passage with a context. And so we wanna start our time in the word this morning by framing everything that we're gonna be considering. We wanna consider that context. So Philippians 3, let's read verse one. Finally, my brothers, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul begins finally. He's not signaling that this letter is coming to a close, but he's really offering us a transition. Now I want to talk to you about some other things. So we've been dealing with very important things. Keep those in mind. Let those bear on what's to come. But now we want to shift gears and address some some other topics. And what does Paul want to bring to this group of brothers that he cares so deeply about? He tells them rejoice. Paul is concerned with the Philippians' joy. That is a theme that's come up over and over again in the book of Philippians thus far. If you remember back to chapter one, Paul uh, says that he labors for their joy in the faith. Uh, moving to chapter two, Paul says that the Philippian, or that he rejoices, and therefore the Philippians should emulate him and rejoice with him. He says that he sends Epaphroditus to the Philippian church that they might rejoice. And rejoice is gonna be uh, another theme that's coming up in chapter four as well. And so this idea of joy or rejoicing is common to the book of Philippians. Here is a bit unique though. Paul isn't just concerned with rejoicing in some general sense, but Paul commands Rejoicing here in Philippians chapter one. He he commands the Philippians to have joy, to be full of a true joy, and I would even say true happiness. And so the question becomes how can Paul do this? How can he command an emotion? Notice how he puts this, though. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Be sure here that Paul isn't saying, uh, church, be merry. Be jovial. Smile a lot. When something hard happens, just plaster that smile on and and act like it's all going to be just perfectly fine. That is not what Paul is trying to communicate in the slightest. No, he's saying find true meaning. Find true satisfaction. Find true life in the Lord. Paul's telling us something about the life of a Christian here. Uh, The the Christian life is a joy-filled life. As one author puts it, it is the character and temper of sincere Christians to rejoice in Christ Jesus. And so, that's what Paul commands of us. Rejoice rejoice in the Lord. Rest satisfied in the interest you have in him and the benefit you hoped for by him, as another author says. We're to strive for this. This is a commandment laid down, and so we're to work for this. We're to give effort that we might rejoice in the Lord, find true and meaningful joy in God. And so, Here we have the context for Philippians chapter three. And now the question becomes, well, how? How do we rejoice in the Lord? How do we find joy in the Lord? For many of us to find joy in anything is a task. Joy does not come easily. As we have all different sorts of circumstances that are in our life that would uh, be enemies of joy. And yet the commandment stands. And so how are we to go about fighting for, striving for joy? Well, I think that is what Paul wants us to consider this morning. And that takes us to these incredible, beautiful uh, gospel and theological realities contained in Philippians chapter three. And so with this context stated, we have two points this morning. We rejoice by Believing in a true gospel. We rejoice by believing in a true gospel. And second, we rejoice by knowing Christ. We rejoice by knowing Christ. So let's pray that the Lord would help us uh, to be full of joy. Father, we thank you for gathering us together so that we can worship you by sitting under your preached word. Lord, would you help us, meet with us, cause us to see the beauty of your scripture and Lord, I pray that we would believe it allow it to shape us and change us and deepen our faith, cause us to live holy and happy lives in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So again, the point that we want to, First, consider from Philippians three is that we rejoice by believing in a true gospel, and I think we see this in verses three and or two and three. So, follow along with me as I read. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are. The circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So again, Paul shifts gears here in Philippians chapter 3. He settles a bit, he catches his breath and says, Okay, I want us to consider something very important. Brothers and sisters, you are to rejoice, pursue this, strive for this. Now, given how we tend to think about things in our current cultural climate, you could imagine that following this commandment, Paul would say something like, now what I want you to do is pursue leisure, pursue uh, friendships, pick up a hobby, find a way to rest or to disengage from the chaos that surrounds you, especially living in Southern California. That that would make sense, right? But where does Paul go instead? He issues a warning. Look out for the dogs. That, That seems like an odd place to go to me when you think about how to encourage rejoicing in the Lord. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. So what is Paul talking about? Or more importantly, who is Paul talking about? And how are these people affecting the Philippians' joy? Here Paul is referring to a group of people called the Judaizers. They were uh, a reoccurring opponent that Paul faced during his ministry. And you see him allude to these Judaizers in several of his letters. And most significantly in the book of Galatians. They were people who claimed to be Christians. They believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They believed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so they hoped in him. That's good, right? We have a common ground with him. They're like us. They believed in Jesus for the salvation of their souls. That sounds good. They believed these things and they believed and taught that Christians had to adhere To the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. In other words, to be counted amongst the people of God, the Judaizers taught that you had to become Jewish. Circumcision really became the battleground for them. This was the litmus test for who was in and who was out. Gentile Christians, in order to know God, in order to find favor in his sight initially and in an ongoing manner needed to be circumcised. For the Judaizers, Christ and circumcision saved. So on one hand, as I look at this and as I consider the Judaizers, I think some of this can be reasonable. I mean, here we have a group of people A group of Jewish believers, people who recognize Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. They see his life, death, and resurrection. They say, the son of God, we must believe in him. They order their life around him to a certain degree. And I I think of that and I go, that's great. They get, they see what so many of their fellow uh, countrymen were not able to see. So this is a good thing, right? Right? And so then it sort of makes sense to me why they would act the way that they do. I mean, they've worshiped God a particular way for thousands of years. They've adhered to the law. They've sought to keep these ceremonial aspects of the law. And so doesn't it make sense that they would seek to worship Christ by sort of bringing along these aspects of worship that have become so near and dear to them as a people group? It kind of seems like might this not be that big of a deal? Should we agree to disagree here? Well, what does Paul say? Does Paul see this as understandable what the Judaizers are teaching? Does he see this as a no big deal sort of thing? Again, what does Paul say about these people? He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers and the mutilation or mutilators of the flesh. Without any context, these words are strong. With context, these words are even stronger. He calls them dogs. And when he calls them dogs, please recognize he's not saying, you dog. You person who does something inappropriate that I shake my finger at. No, 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 no. When he calls them dogs, he's using what was a common Jewish insult for a non-Jewish person. In this day and age, dogs weren't pets. You didn't have, you know, emotional therapy dogs in the first century, right? No. Uh, In Roman society, in Jewish society, these things were scoundrels. They were dirty. They were scavengers. And as such, they were, for a Jewish person, unclean. In other words, they would dirty a person and make them unacceptable so that they should not approach God. And so when Jewish people called Gentiles dogs, they were saying, you are an unclean one. You are one who is outside of the camp. You do not have access with God and you cannot know God. It's a packed saying. And yet here, Paul turns it on his head and says, no. It's not the Gentile people over here who are dogs, it is you who are the dogs. You are the scavengers. You are the unclean ones. You are the ones who are outside of the camp, unacceptable before God. The ceremonial rituals that you thought made you clean are actually causing you to be unclean. And Paul keeps going, not only that, but you're evildoers. You aren't protecting the faith. You're perverting the faith. You aren't upholding sound doctrine. You're undermining sound doctrine. You're not laying out the way of righteousness. No, you are actively doing and sowing evil. And finally, Paul turns this concern on them one last time. The Judaizers think they are worshiping God through a cutting off that occurs in circumcision. And Paul says, no, you are the mutilation. You are the mutilators of the flesh. The the word that Paul's really using here is he's essentially saying that you think that you are cutting off as a form of worship, but what you're actually doing is you are castrating yourself. It's a graphic image. What he's saying is, is that in the cutting off of circumcision, you are actually cutting yourself off from God. Again, strong words so what does Paul tell us to do regarding these false teachers look out for them look out three different times Paul says this this is important repetition look out look out look out and so why why the strong words why the strong warnings Why would Paul go there in calling these people what he called them and in warning the Philippians of their influence? Verse three gives us his rationale. Look out for them and their teaching because for we are the circumcision. Look out for them because, in other words, we are the true people of God. Paul goes on to say three ways that we are the true people of God. Who are the true people of God? Those who worship not according to the law, but by the Spirit. It's a distinctively new covenant possibility. We worship the Spirit because of the Son, who, as He ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent the Spirit to indwell us so that we might cry, Abba, Father. Who are the people of God? Those who worship not according to works of the law or adherence to the law, but by the spirit, in spirit and in truth. Who are the true people of God? Those who glory in Christ Jesus. Those who focus their life and their energy on the son. Those who center their efforts and their worship on Jesus. Not on themselves, not on their works, but on Christ and him crucified. Who are the true people of God? Those who put no confidence in the flesh. Those people who recognize that salvation is from first to last a work of the Lord. These three things actually beautifully summarize what it means to be a Christian. And so in this verse, I think Paul is telling us to watch out for this group because they aren't the people of God. And by teaching what they are teaching, they are actively undermining the true people of God. Paul is saying that by adding ingredients to the salvation formula, by saying Christ plus something, in this case, Christ plus circumcision, they're actually messing up what it means to be a Christian. So for the sake of our joy, For the sake of our true happiness, we watch out for these false teachers because they can ruin that thing that brings us true joy. No, we believe in a true gospel that says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There is no other way. The lookout from this passage from Paul here reminds me of a staff lunch we had a few years ago. Um, So, here at Grace, we have wonderfully talented people. Uh, some of them know how to cook well. And every once in a while, they will bless us with their wonderful cooking. Well, Paula Clevenger is one of those talented people who will occasionally make meals for the staff here at Grace. And, and she'll invite us along. And it is always amazing. When I get those little notices that my, in my email that say, hey, we're making lunch today. Come along. I can't tell you how my heart rejoices it's just it's good stuff and when paula sends it out i know it's usually going to be some sort of food that that really speaks to my heart so paula makes really good chili and being from the south it's good it's really good and so uh, a few years back paula sends the email out that glorious email i am making chili for everyone we'll meet in the east sanctuary at such and such a time come along It's going to be great. So I go over and there's two giant pots of chili, a spicy pot of chili and a regular pot of chili. I like spicy, so I get the spicy chili. Uh, It seemed to me that most people got the regular pot of chili. And so we sit down and we just put white, long, eight-foot tables, stack them up. So we're all sitting in this line. I start eating and, and it's a little spicy, but it's not anything terrible. And I start to notice something though it seems that the, the talk really goes away pretty quickly. I start to notice that, that people are sort of, and, uh, and next thing you know, everybody's reaching for their water and people are starting to sweat and, and pretty quickly, people actually just abandon ship and they're like, we're done. I cannot continue eating this chili. It's so spicy. And these are people who are eating the regular batch of chili and so what's going on here um, we had no idea what was happening until later when Paula went into the kitchen to clean up all of this stuff and she realized that she normally uses a healthy dose of paprika in the regular chili well this time she accidentally gra- grabbed the cayenne pepper instead of paprika and so she put a healthy dose of cayenne pepper in the chili Such that it really affected people's ability to enjoy this chili. Now, imagine for a second that instead of a person adding too much pepper to chili and slightly affecting people's ability to enjoy that chili, a person was to add poison to chili. They're going to add arsenic to chili. What's the result? It's not a diminished good time like we had in the East Sanctuary over there. It's not a joke that we tell later and bring up around the office. No, no, what is it? It, It's death, right? Paul here is saying that the Judaizers are adding something to the pot of Salvation Chili, It may seem harmless, it may seem like too much cayenne pepper, but in reality they are adding poison to the pot such that it fundamentally changes the pot and makes it something deadly. The gospel plus something is a false gospel and therefore a worthless gospel. It's not a gospel that's just a little different that we can abide. It's a gospel that doesn't save and actually damages. Grace plus something is no grace at all. We have to get this. We have to get this. And the reason we have to get this is that we too must look out for this. We don't have Judaizers in our day and age. We don't have people walking around saying we are of this group that teaches that that salvation is of grace plus works. Satan is crafty and he makes it difficult for us to be able to discern what is true and what is false. Nevertheless, there are people who preach this kind of thing all over the place. I want to highlight two groups that I think do this a lot, especially in our day and age and that we might even be susceptible to. First, we have to be careful for the religious people. Now, I want to ask you to let me define what I mean by this. I think we all are gonna think different things, but please let me try to explain what I mean here. We have to be careful for the religious people. What I mean by that is those people who would say that we earn God's salvation and his ongoing favor his ongoing presence with us by doing religious works. In other words, we earn God by reading our Bibles, by praying every day, by serving more in the programs of the church. That's the ingredient that will get you into the gates of heaven and will keep you there. You you gotta uh, keep reading, keep serving. You know, we we don't do certain things. We don't have sex before we're married. We don't drink, we don't smoke. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't steal. These things will make us presentable before a holy God. These things will put us in the favor of a holy God. These are great things, right? Great things to do or to not do. We should certainly allow our faith to sweat. True faith is faith that that works, right? But... These things do not save. Good things, things that we should certainly pursue as new creatures, recreated, yet things that in and of themselves do not save are insufficient saviors. So we have to be careful for the religious people. The second group we have to be careful for is the truly religious people. The truly religious people trying to make a distinction here because in some circles religion is a bad word and in reality it's not true religion is caring for the widows and the orphans right that's a beautiful expression of worship but some will take this beautiful expression of worship and they will turn it into the litmus test for salvation so you do you serve at food bank do you Uh, advocate for the vulnerable and the oppressed in the public square? Do you support such and such group or such and such group? Do you do acts of true religion? Again, these are great things. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? It's the second commandment. Again, true faith sweats. And so faith is going to be worked out in loving kindness towards those people who are in our midst, for the vulnerable amongst us, for the orphans and for the widows, absolutely. Again, are these things the gospel? Do these things have power to raise us from the dead? Can they regenerate a dead heart? Can they redeem us from spiritual slavery? Can they adopt us into the family of God from spiritual orphanage? No. No, again and again. What do the scriptures say? What saves? Who saves? Jesus. Jesus alone saves. He alone is sufficient to rescue us, He alone is sufficient to redeem us from the pit. God saves sinners in Christ and in Him alone. And so watch out, look out, be on guard. In preparation for this sermon, I spent time looking at books, at bookstores, on Amazon. And it's just amazing how much Christian literature, Christian living literature is out there that preaches this sort of false works-based do, do, do sort of gospel. These, these, these arenas are littered with false, weak, ineffective, impotent gospels. Blogs are full of this stuff. Podcasts are full of this stuff. Not only that, but we all have a natural fleshly bent that is going to want to earn our own way. We want to be the heroes of our own story. This stuff is everywhere. And so we have to be careful. We have to watch out. This stuff is not Christianity. And so what's the best way to be on the lookout? The answer, I think, given by Paul in Philippians 3 is this. To know and believe in the true gospel. To know and believe in the true gospel. To know and believe, to be acquainted with, to be familiar with the fact that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We have to so know that, so embrace that, so believe that, be so intimately aware of the gospel, have it turned it over in our minds so many times that we are naturally able to identify what is false and weak and what lacks power. You notice verse one, Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Be okay with gospel repetition. Be okay with sitting under the gospel week in and week out, with rehearsing the gospel in our sung worship time, with talking about the gospel, with continually going back to the reality that God saves sinners in Christ. We are a desperately needy people. We will never outgrow our need for the true gospel to be preached and believed day by day. And this is worked into grace's ministry values. This is worked into our doctrinal statement. We will be a people who focus our energy and our attention on Christ crucified because we think that that brings glory to God and it's good for us. This is what Ephesians 4 gets at, I think, when it, it says that we will be people who need to be warned because otherwise we'll be tossed to and fro by every wave of cunning doctrine. Well, how are we gonna be warned? How are we gonna be prepared for those waves? by knowing and believing the true gospel. And so, look out. Look out and seek true joy by embracing and believing a true gospel. I think Paul really, really, really wants us to get that false gospels can ruin our joy because they undermine salvation. And so we have to watch out. That's stated negatively though in verses two and three. Paul really wants us to get this though. So I think now he wants to state it positively and show us that the gospel truly is the basis for true joy. And so second thing we wanna see from the scriptures today is that we rejoice by knowing Christ. We rejoice by knowing Christ. Start in verse four and read through verse 11 if you follow along with me not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what we're seeing in these verses, I believe is Paul giving us a positive object lesson to what was just stated in verses two and three he does this by giving us a theological explanation of his own coming to know christ as lord and savior so you may recall that when paul became a christian uh we we have that highlighted for us in the book of acts and in the book of acts tells us that formerly paul was a persecutor of the church and he did so even to the point of persecuting christians to death and he was on the way to persecute christians on the road to Damascus, when Jesus met him. And as a result of this encounter, uh, Paul's eyes were opened and he became a Christian. But how did Paul become a Christian? And to Paul's point, how does that affect his ability to be full of joy? At a theological level, what was happening in Paul, in his heart, on the road to Damascus? And how does that affect his ability to be full of joy? That's what Paul deals with in these verses as he gives us some of his biography. Who was Paul formally according to these verses? He was impressive. He was impressive. One author puts it this way. He had an impressive beginning, an impressive nationality, An impressive lineage, an impressive upbringing, an impressive standard, an impressive sincerity, an impressive morality. An impressive person. Look at these things. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. This is like saying, Paul, or I was dedicated as a baby. From the beginning, I was set apart for the Lord. in, In some squares like I was sprinkled as a baby I was baptized as a baby set apart from the beginning Paul was of Israel he had a privileged impressive nationality he was a natural born member of God's people he was one of the chosen people he didn't have to purchase his way into this group it was natural to him this isn't all that altogether different from being born in a wealthy and privileged country like the United States or any other Western country where we have access to the gospel, access to the things of God such that we can be raised in the United States and just sort of believe that we know God because the people around us do. Paul had an impressive lineage. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was part of one of the elite tribes of Israel, one of the only tribes that stood with Judah when no one else would. This isn't that different to being born to a good and upstanding uh, Christian family, Christian parents having a Christian family line, an impressive line. Your parents have their their name on the fellowship, Paul, because they've been there so long and donated so much money. Paul's a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he didn't shrink back from his Jewish faith. He was the kid who grew up in the children's ministry and graduated on to the youth ministry and graduated on to to all these different acts of service and becoming a member of the church. He was active in the faith community. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous and blameless. He had an impressive standard, sincerity, morality. He studied the word. He was the one who was out in the streets evangelizing, telling everyone that he could about God, taking the the extra classes, maybe going to seminary, learning an original language, reading commentaries. Again, Paul was impressive. If you look at these things, you recognize that Paul had an impressive resume. He had a resume such that no one could outdo him. He had reason to be confidence in the flesh. If anyone could have confidence in the flesh, if you looked at him, you might say that he was blameless, not perfect, but blameless. But what does Paul say about this resume that he puts forward? What does he say about his impressive list of accolades? Verses seven and eight. Whatever gain I had, Whatever asset I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Here, Paul gives us an image, an accounting image. He says, We're going to do some holy accounting. He sets up a ledger, and in it it has two columns. He has a gains column or an assets column and he has a loss column or a debts column. And he starts this whole image by listing all of his gains, listing all of his assets. So over here, I've got my zeal. I've got my morality. I've got my lineage. I've got my nationality. My parents are over here. I was set apart from the beginning of my life over here. I've evangelized. I've read my Bible. I've done all my things over here. This is in my gains list. Impressive. It's an impressive resume what does he do with that impressive list he transfers it all he takes it all and puts it in the loss category he takes every single asset and he puts it in the debts category all of it nothing left in the gains and he goes on to say that I count everything as a loss every single thing as a loss and he goes as far to say that he counts these former gains these former assets as rubbish this is a packed word it's a in your face kind of word some people translate it in very graphic ways but the idea is is that this is stuff that's thrown out and scavenged amongst it's garbage it's dirty it's refuse Why? Why would Paul make this great accounting transfer? Why would Paul consider his former gains as garbage, as rubbish? Why? For the sake of Christ. More specifically, for the surpassing worth, for the surpassing treasure of knowing Christ. So what G.I. Packer says that life is all about for the sake of abiding in and growing in an intimate and true relationship with God. When the scriptures speak of knowing like this, they speak of intimacy. Of not knowing about something, but having an intimate knowledge of something. An experienced knowledge of something. When we talk about knowing something, it's like a father knows a son. Or a, a mother knows their son or their daughter. A husband and a wife know one another Deep, intimate friendships—they know one another. This is what Paul was willing to trade it all for: knowledge of Christ. You see, Paul gets it; he gets it, and he gets his story at a theological level. Verse nine, Paul says he does this. He counts these things at a loss, so that he may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness a right standing that comes from the law. Paul recognized that on the road to Damascus, his primary problem wasn't that he didn't do enough, that he didn't have enough righteous deeds, that he didn't fill up that gains column of the ledger sufficiently. That wasn't his problem. He may have acted righteously, but he lacked righteousness. He wasn't right with God. As was referenced earlier, Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. He could have filled that list up forever, but the chasm between him and a holy God was too big for him to overcome. Impossible, never going to happen. And Paul rightly recognized this. No amount of gains was gonna fix that. He needed a heavenly solution to his problem. He needed holy accounting. As Romans 3 again says, the righteousness of God has appeared and has been manifested, made available to us through Jesus the Son. See, Paul can transfer his assets over to his losses column because Jesus counted his perfect righteousness. His perfect record, his perfect obedience, his perfect faithfulness, his perfect submission to the Father, his perfect loving kindness, he credited that to Paul's account. By grace, through faith. Righteousness through faith in Christ. In giving up his gains, Paul gained his greatest treasure, the treasure that is of surpassing worth, Christ himself. He gained knowledge of Christ. He gained relationship with God through Christ. He gained intimacy, sonship, inheritance, redemption, and eventual glory. Enemies of the gospel would have you focus your attention on your resume. It would have you focus your attention on your gains column. Your flesh will seek to get you to focus your attention here as well. And by doing this they would rob you of your joy for they would undermine what life is ultimately all about. They would rob you of knowledge of God, knowing him and being found in him possessing the righteousness of Christ, Christ's perfect record. So do you have a resume? When you consider the question, why should I be allowed to get into heaven? Or why do I have favor with God? Where does your mind go? Does it go to your resume? Does it go to your gains column? Does your mind go to your Bible reading? Does it go to your commitment to prayer or how much money you've given? Does it go to your political adversary, your political advocacy or the fact that you never miss an opportunity to register your uh, virtue on the internet? Does it go to the fact that you haven't indulged your pet sin for such and such amount of days? That you've earnestly pursued sexual purity? Or that you know a lot about God? That you've graduated from Biola and you can wax eloquent about the finer points of theology? If so, I want to put this gently but plainly you are missing the mark. You're missing the mark. You're currently trusting in an impotent and false gospel. You're trusting in a gospel that is incapable of saving you or providing you true and everlasting joy. And so, what do we do? At some level, this is going to be all of us. I think we're going to be tempted to self-justify ourselves. Again, there's a reason that Satan so, in such a crafty manner continually puts this before us and it's because we're susceptible. I think there's a reason why Paul goes here in Philippians and Galatians and Romans and over and over and over again. There's a reason why he's so forceful about this group of false teachers. So what do you do if you find yourself having bought into this false an impotent works-based gospel. We repent. We believe in Jesus. Whether that be for the first time, for the salvation of our souls, or whether that be part of our life in Christ, working out our salvation, and we do it for the hundredth time, we repent and we believe in Jesus. We wave the white flag. We lay ourselves down. We take a giant X and we put it in our gains column. And we say, I'm yours Lord, I have nothing to offer. You are my hope, you are my righteousness. I cannot stand on any merit of my own. You are all I have, you are my hope and my stay. We commit ourselves to holy accounting. We follow Paul's lead and we transfer that gain over to our losses. We count it all as loss, recognizing that in doing so, we gain everything in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Please note that Paul's not saying here that, that these things that he counts as loss are bad things, inherently bad things. or things that shouldn't be appreciated. No, Paul never abandons his nationality. He loves his nationality. He doesn't abandon his zeal or anything like that. No, he recognizes them rightly as things that do not save. He recognizes them for what they are. And so no matter if your righteousness surpasses that of Paul, which it doesn't, you will never fill the gains column up enough to earn your way to God. So give up. Surrender everything to Jesus. Instead of seeking notches on your belt to make you more acceptable to God, make it your aim to know Christ. To know Christ. J.I. Packer, who literally wrote the book Knowing God, says that once you make it your business to know Christ, everything else falls into place. I find that to be true in my own life. Do you want enduring joy? Do you want true joy, true happiness? Do you want to be able to rejoice in moments of great sorrow? Do you want peace in the midst of chaos? To make it your life's endeavor to know Christ. Pursue knowing Christ. As we close, I want to remind you that even as life is all about knowing God, by knowing Christ, the Bible also says this, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is what Packer says again. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as friend, one who loves me. There's no moment when his eye is off me or is attention distracted from you, No moment, therefore, when his care falters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for him who is our righteousness. We thank you that because of Christ, we can know Christ and therefore know you. Father, I pray that that would fill us with joy, fill us with hope and with gladness, not with mere smiling faces, Lord, but with a satisfaction and a rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would protect us, that you would guard us from false teaching, that you would so ground us in the true gospel that we are able to resist the the cunning waves of false gospels, that we would love one another and support one another even as we seek to do this together. Lord, help us. We need you desperately. And so we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.